Good morning, everyone. Today we are going to be continuing on in 1 Samuel. We'll be reading from chapter 3 all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1a. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went down and lay in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin that he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Good morning. Welcome again. It's great to see you this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. If you've been a church kid, you've probably heard this story hundreds of times. Um, if that wasn't you, I'm kind of excited for you, actually, because the more time I spent in this passage this week, the more I realized the kids' stories really sell it short. <laughs> 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, verses 1, and we're going to go just, just dip, our, dip our little pinky toe into chapter 4. Uh, we are doing a series on the Lord's anointed, and to be anointed means to have the favor and the blessing of God upon you. Also, it means to be marked out with God's holy presence and to be appointed for a special task. And this book is going to uh, draw these themes out, as it were. 
why is this relevant to us? First of all, I'm just going to keep saying this till you can say it back to me. So when you get tired of me saying it, just come up to me and say, Jonathan, I know the four, and, and I'll, then I'll know we're ready. Uh, but I'm going to keep saying it to you so you know why we're doing this. Uh, we're looking at this book because, first of all, we need to have a baseline for our theology, a baseline for who we understand God to be. If we don't have right thinking about God, then how are we going to engage in right living before God? Uh, secondly, we want to locate the favor that God has to offer and the favor that God seeks to give to his people. We need to know where that is found. The world's going to try and sell you a whole bunch of goodies as to where you can find the good life. But if God is promising favor, where do we see it? Thirdly, we need to learn what to do with our desire for power and control. And if there's a book that really helps curb that appetite, it's this one. Uh, and so we're really, uh, we're going to see the way that God brings low and the way that God raises up as we go through this text. But ultimately, I hope that this just makes you hunger more for the presence of Jesus, a presence that you can experience now through his Holy Spirit, and a presence that we get to enjoy forever in eternity. Uh, this title of this message is Listen to Him. If you say, who is him? I say that's the point. <laughs> it's meant to be intentionally ambiguous. So it prompts you to think, who, who am I listening to? Who are we listening to? Uh, the big question is the same as last week, and, and it's really the same question that's driving both of these chapters, but we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle this week. But the question is, how can we know the Lord? How can we know the Lord? What does it mean to know God? Now, for some, this possibility is one maybe you haven't considered. Maybe you think knowing God is, is simply a matter of kind of reading the informational briefing and living at the museum. You know, I don't know if you've been to a museum recently. Uh, one of my favorite things to do uh, when we go on a bushwalk around this, this place is that when you go on a bushwalk, you'll often see a little placard and it says, so-and-so was here and he named it this because of this reason and because of that reason. And for a lot of people, I think that's the extent of how they think they can know God. You know, God was here. Here's a little placard. You can read about what he did back then. But right now, just enjoy the landscape and a bit of history. But is that the extent to which we can know the Lord? We're going to see this morning that God reveals himself to us through his word. It becomes quite apparent here uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, with that, would you pray with me as we seek his blessing? Father in heaven, would you grant us an ability through your Holy Spirit to see you clearer today than when we walked in? Lord, may we have an encounter with you that is truly personal and truly transforming. Father, there is nothing on earth that we could desire that is better than you. As the psalmist said, what do we have on earth besides you? What do we have in heaven besides you? Father, would you show yourself in ways that we know and understand because you know and understand us perfectly. Would you help us today in Jesus' name? Amen. Uh, by way of an outline this morning, um, and apologies, my little screen here is not working, so I'm going to reset this. Um, otherwise, I'll be squinting off the back. Um, so this passage is going to describe the establishing of God's prophet, Samuel, for God's people. And this reads like a drama. So I, I want you to be thinking as we go through this, think about this as if you were watching a play. Now, it, it was real. I'm not saying it's, it's just imaginative. I'm saying it really happened. But as we receive any story, it's important to visualize the story and to see the story. And that's what I hope you do. The setting comes to us in verses 1 to 3, a dimming light. Then you're going to hear the call of God. Uh, which deals with perceiving the Lord, verses 4 to 10. Uh, then we'll hear from the Lord himself. He reveals himself to Samuel, verses 11 to 18. And then finally, we have a nice ending where that dimming light is now quite bright. Follow with me from verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. 
Notice, interesting, the word of the Lord revealed through a vision. You say one is, uh, one is a, a word of hearing, the perception of the ears. The other is a perception of sight. But actually, the Bible seems to not mind confusing the two, mixing the two. Often prophets would receive a vision and then they would communicate a message. So a vision is revealing the word. Don't let that hang you up. Now, we know that hearing from the Lord was rare. Now, you might read that as a bit of historical anecdote, but if you were part of the people of God, you should read that and be troubled. God is your king. God is your Lord. He's your deliverer. He heard the cries of your people in Egypt. He rescued you out of slavery. He's the one who fed you with manna through the wilderness. He was there as a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. The idea that you would rarely hear from him should have been something that was very concerning. And it hints at a bit of the barren spirituality that we've said Hannah typifies at the beginning of this story. So hearing from the Lord is rare. Is it rare for you? When's the last time you discern God speaking to you with a personal address. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The times that we've seen Eli, he's been in a reclining position. We first saw him in chapter one, he's leaning against the door frame as he's watching Hannah and as he's misunderstanding her prayer. We presume that, that, that he got up when he rebuked his sons last week, but here he is and we're told that he's lying down. It's nighttime, that's not a problem, but it's interesting that this is usually where we see him and he's in his usual place. Now we're told in verse three, that's not the temple or that's not the, the sanctuary because that's where Samuel is. Verse three, the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Like any good storyteller, the narrator here in Samuel is saying, I believe, two things at the same time. In terms of the setting, he's giving you a historically accurate detail that helps you understand when this took place. When it says the lamp of God was dimming, it, it means it was close to dawn. That's because at nighttime, there was a, there was a lamp a, in the holy place, in the sanctuary, that was meant to illuminate. And so the fact that it had nearly gone out meant that it was almost morning. And yet the narrator could have said it was almost morning. You need, to read, you need to remember whenever you read a story, whether it's in the Bible or whether it's in your local dimmicks or whatever, whenever you read a story, an author has choices. An author is saying something to you, trying to communicate something. And I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that the author is hinting here when he says the lamp of God had not yet gone out. The lamp of God, we're told is similar to the word of God. David would write, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Light has been a metaphor for God's revelation since God spoke and light came to be. And so this little note here that the lamp of God had not yet gone out, it's kind of a, a little reminder to us that even though the visions were rare, it's not as if God had stopped revealing himself. And yet, Eli, who is his representative, his priest, who is stand, lying down outside of the house of the Lord, we're also told his eyes are becoming weak. So we have a picture here of a dimming light, a dimming revelation. God's going to reinsert himself into the picture here in chapter 3. And as he reinserts himself into the picture, he's going to begin revealing himself again. Oftentimes, we, we can make the mistake of thinking that, well, if I'm not hearing from God, he's not speaking. As if to say, well, if God wanted to tell me something, he could just show up and tell me something. Now, while I don't doubt that to be true, he's spoken through 
donkeys. He's spoken through all sorts of things before. There also is in Scripture a requirement of God's people to be listening. And so we're warned. The wilderness generation is warned. We're warned in the book of Hebrews not to be like them who, though they heard the word, they didn't hear it with faith. And so Eli, even though he's got the right title and he's in the right place, the sense is that he's not quite perceptive. It's a dimming light. Has the light been dimming in your life? Has the revelation of God been shrinking? Sometimes if you're a Christian for a while, you, you, you look back on those early years and, and you say, wow, God was just so present. He was just, he was just so powerful. He was there and I sensed his presence and he was with me all the time. And we, we talk about it almost like I hear people talk about high school, you know, when they used to walk around. I was a time when I was the big man on campus, you know. I had the jacket, I had the people who thought I was cool and popular and, and, and they sort of wax nostalgic about, about the good old days. Sometimes that's how people talk about their relationship with the Lord. As if it's gone. As if God is somehow doesn't want to reveal himself anymore. As if God's said, well, I don't really want to have to say anything to my people at all. I'm quite happy to be, to be distant. You see, there was, a, there was a, a flow of thought, a flow of philosophy around the time of the Enlightenment which said that God is like a divine watchmaker. You know, he, he's, he's the perfect craftsman of, of the Swiss watches. I don't know, maybe there's better watches, but Swiss watches have a great reputation. And, and God, you know, he, he designed the universe and he intricately wove it together. I don't doubt that. But they say, you know, he winds the clock and then he sets it on the shelf. And he just lets it play out. And I think... Our adversary, the devil, should be given a lot of credit for that line of thinking because on the one hand, it acknowledges God's existence and on the other hand, it makes him entirely irrelevant to people's everyday lives. What a perfect middle ground for people who struggle to believe. The lamp of God was dimming. I wonder if it's been dimming in your life. What's God saying? The good news is he didn't let it go out. We come to the call, verses 4 to 10. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. Now, I checked this with a Hebrew scholar, okay? Because <laughs> the majority of translations aren't going to agree with me. But I'm going to read, I'm going to tell you verbatim what the Hebrew says. What the Hebrew says here is, the Lord called Samuel and said, here I am. It doesn't say Samuel said, here I am. The flow of the sentence is, the Lord called Samuel and said, here I am. So it's, it's, it's technically grammatically possible that the first person who says, here I am, could be Samuel or it could be the Lord. Now, I think it's the Lord, actually, because... Later on in verse 10, if you want to take a peek, the Lord came and stood there calling as at the other times. In other words, the Lord was there presently. It's not as if Samuel felt like a, a bit of heartburn or, or, or some sort of, you know, had a whisper in his ear. It, God was present. And I also think you can make a good argument to say, it's the Lord saying, I'm here. Because, verse 5, and he ran to Eli and said, here I am. Now, why do you say, here I am, and then get up and run to somebody and say, here I am? I don't know. Maybe he was dazed and confused. I'm not trying to undermine your translations, okay? A lot of great work. People smarter than me go into that. But I did check with a Hebrew scholar, someone who does this for a living, and they said, Jonathan, your reading is possible. There we go. <laughs> whether you think it's the Lord who said, here I am, or whether you think it's Samuel who said, here I am, the point is, God is calling him. 
But Samuel doesn't perceive it. Verse 5. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Any parents here? <laughs> right? <laughs> we can all relate to this, right? Yeah. Dad, mom, dad. Mom. <laughs> what? I'm here. Yeah, I know, you woke me up. What do you want? I didn't want anything. Go, go lie down. Go lie down. Verse 6, again the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. And here we're told what's going on, verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. What a rich and intriguing verse this is. Two things. Just right off the cuff, two things off the surface. Number one, he didn't know the Lord because the word of the Lord was not revealed to him yet. Hearing the word of God and understanding the word of God are two different things. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit of God to help us to understand the Word of God. This is, this is what Jesus said. You remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to these two disciples. They didn't know who he was. And he begins recounting for them over and over and over, all throughout the Scriptures, showing them that the Messiah had to suffer and to die. And all this time, they're traveling with Jesus. They're walking with the, the risen Lord himself, but they didn't know yet. And Luke records for us at the end of that chapter, when Jesus is with the disciples, it says, and he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. That's why we pray before we preach. Because at the end of the day, what is going to matter is not the words of the human being who is standing at this pulpit. What is going to matter is the Holy Spirit taking his truth and driving it, sowing it, planting it, watering it deep within your heart. Then you will know the Lord. The other interesting thing here is that here we have someone who is serving the Lord but doesn't know him. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> he's in the right spot. He's, he's, he's giving his hard work and his, and his energy. He's serving the Lord. A Lord he doesn't quite know yet. Now we're meant to understand that this is, this is probably due to just his inexperience. The time hadn't come yet. But I'm going to say this to you folks again and again and again and again. Being in a church, participating in its activities and its functions, offering your time or your money or, or all these things does not make you a Christian does not make you right with God. It doesn't actually bring you into the knowledge of the Lord. Now, I'll put you in a great place to be exposed to the knowledge of the Lord. And for those reasons, we would always encourage people to serve and to get involved and to be in church. Absolutely. There's great encouragement that can be found. You put great exposure to it. But we can't confuse those things. The Lord must reveal himself to you. He must call you. Verse 8, a third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. <laughs> then Eli realized the Lord was calling the boy. Eli, the experienced priest, who does have a knowledge of the Lord for all his, for all his failures, he discerns what's going on. Verse 9, so Eli told Samuel, go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. So three times the Lord has called and he's run to Eli. Three times he's gone back, but this time Eli gives him the wording of a prayer. What a beautiful prayer. I encourage you, if you don't know how to read your Bible, try, try praying this prayer before you open your Bible and sit down to read God's Word. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What do I love about this prayer? What do I love about Eli's advice here? First of all, 
it acknowledges the personal presence of the Lord. I am not engaging with a philosophy. I'm not engaging with a tradition. I'm engaging with my divine creator. The second thing I love about this, it puts my heart, it puts our heart in the right posture. Your servant. If I can pray, speak, Lord, I've acknowledged that he's there. If I can pray, your servant, I've said, God, and I know where I stand in this relationship. And finally, if I can say, I'm listening, then I've said, God, all my plans and agendas, I've left them over here to the side, and I am just ready to receive. What a great prayer. Eli goes and lays down in that place. Verse 10, the Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. That double naming is quite interesting. There's only a handful of places where God calls out to a person twice. One is Abraham on Mount Moriah as he's there with knife in hand ready to offer his son. Abraham, Abraham. One is Jacob in Genesis chapter 46 verse 5 after he's let go of everything, after he's sent his son Benjamin away. And God, I imagine intervening. As Jacob's got about nothing left, he says, Jacob, Jacob, it's okay, go down to Egypt. But it's not just the Old Testament. There's a certain guy on the road to Damascus who had a very specific purpose, who was fully convinced in his own mind that he was doing the right thing who was sold out to protect and defend the honor of God, and he was going to do it by persecuting, by throwing into prison, and in some cases, allowing for or facilitating the murder of people who called on the name of Jesus. This guy is named Saul. And there he was on the way to Damascus, and the voice cried out, the light shined, and the voice cried out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, God has a history of coming and intervening, and he does it often, not through lighting a banner in the clouds, but through speaking to his people, getting their attention. But the Lord is there. And so I want you to imagine now we're watching this scene unfold as if it were a drama or a play. And so you have the house of God, right? You have the holy place, the holy of holies. You have the place where God said he would put his presence. He's there. There's a curtain. Samuel's sleeping just on the other side of that curtain. And then there's a door that goes into the, into the Lord's house. And then somewhere else on the temple ground, somewhere else on the precinct is Eli. Notice, Eli has never gotten up. He's like me with my kids. I'm sorry, Joanna. I, I'm very slow to get up. <laughs> I, Eli's like me. He just, he's laying down. And even after three times, you don't get the sense he moves at all. Now, by this time, we're going to learn more next week that he's, he's become quite sedentary. His eyes are failing. I put in my notes, did he have diabetes? I don't know. He could have had some condition. He could have had something that was, that was really impacting his health. Maybe he couldn't actually move. So I want to be careful not to know, you know, not to, not to push him too hard. But if you're watching this unfold in a drama, you have a ping pong match where you have Samuel going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. God is calling and he runs to Eli. God is calling and he runs to Eli. God is calling and he runs to Eli. Are you seeing what's happening? What do we know about Eli? He doesn't have the greatest perception. 
He misunderstood Hannah when she was crying out in her despair and her agony and her grief. When she was pouring her heart out to the Lord, he thought she was drunk. What else do we know about Eli? He had these two boys who were really corrupt and, 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 and they were wicked. They were making themselves fat off the sacrifices that people were bringing to God and they were sleeping with the women in the temple precinct. As Eugene Peter said, says, using the holy place to cover up unholy motives. Eli, he gave him a, a bit of a tongue lashing, but he didn't do anything else. And so, God is speaking, and the person is running to Eli, who's not moving. It's a bit of a parable, isn't it? God trying to communicate to his people, but as he's doing that, the message is, is not getting out. The message is not, is not being delivered. They're, they're, they're sort of fumbling the ball, if you will. They're fumbling the word of the Lord. But this time, Samuel knows it's the Lord. And what does the Lord have to say? Verse 11, and the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that's going to make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. It can be a good thing or a bad thing. In this case, it's a bit of a whoa. That's a shocker. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Now we finally get God to weigh in. And when God looks at what Eli's been doing, he says, Eli, you're accountable because you're allowing your sons to take my name my sacred, set apart, my holy name, and they are blaspheming it, meaning they make it a common thing. The word of the Lord might as well be the, the, the word of your local barber or, or the word of the local newspaper. It's just another voice in a sea of voices. That's what they were doing. The word of the Lord meant nothing. He says, you're blaspheming. Your sons are blaspheming me. And you're failing to restrain them. The person with the ability, the person with the knowledge, the person who should have acted, failed to act. Even if Eli came out and held a whole preaching conference about the glory of God at Shiloh, and he went and he passed out pamphlets where he got a great telemarketing team and they rang people up all throughout Israel and said, hey, come to Shiloh. Eli's running a preaching conference. He's going to teach us about the ways of the Lord. Breakout sessions with Hophni and Phinehas. That thing's going right in the bin. No matter how inspired his message would have been. Why? Because the whole operation, the whole ministry was working to undermine who God was and who he is. They were blaspheming God and Eli did nothing about it. He failed to restrain them. Verse 14, therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. That's a challenging verse. But it's a fitting judgment. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli, they, they, they trifled with the offering that was meant to, to teach and to show people that sin needed to be covered and atoned for. And they treated the offering as if it wasn't really an offering at all. It was just something for them to get themselves fat on with their special fork. Samuel lay down until morning and they opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, notice now who's calling. You see, it was Samuel, 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 and he was running. Eli, you called. No, I didn't. Eli, you called. No, I didn't. Eli, you called. No, I didn't. Samuel, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. He gives him the word. Now who's calling for Samuel? Eli. 
do you see? The story itself is a parable. It's a parable of the fall of Eli and the rise of Samuel as God's authorized representative. And now we get this wonderful language that the doors of the temple are open. Now God is going to be heard. Now his voice will be brought to the people. But Eli says, he wants to know, what was it he said to you? Eli asked, but do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. I, I find this tragically ironic. He's pleading with Samuel, who he calls his son. So he's effectively pleading with somebody he views as his son, saying, don't keep anything secret. Don't, don't keep it from me. We got to get it all out in the open. But for however ironic that is, I think his response is an interesting lesson for us. So Samuel told him everything. Hide nothing. He hid nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. What a harsh word. Samuel's first message that he had to deliver was a message to his teacher. <laughs> to say, your time's up. God is going to judge you and your family. The destruction that he told you about is going to come to pass. And rather than railing against Samuel, rather than crying out in bitterness, rather than saying, this is not fair, this is not fair, and throwing a tantrum, what does he say? He says, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. For all his passivity with his sons, to the extent that that prepared him to be passive in accepting the Lord's will. Maybe that was a credit to him. He was ready to embrace the new thing that God was doing, even though it meant personal pain and personal suffering. There's a word here to us that we don't become too comfortable in our positions that we don't establish ourselves by our titles or by our work. You see, for Eli, he was kind of, again, Eugene Peterson, he, the priesthood under Eli, it looked, like, it looked like a job. It was a kind of job. And it was his job to police the temple, and it was his job to make sure everything just sort of kept running. It was a job. But you get the sense with Samuel that it's not a job. Now with Samuel, it's a calling, it's a vocation. And as I sat there and I scratched my head and I thought, you know, God's working so hard to get Samuel's attention. Why is he working so hard to get his attention? And when he finally gets his attention, you'd think he'd say something like, hey, I'm so glad that you've come to this place because I have a great job for you to do. When, when God finally gets Samuel's attention, he doesn't give him his induction interview. He doesn't give him an overview of say, well, let me tell you what it means to be a prophet. And, you know, if you're going to be a prophet, you've got to speak for me. And here's what you do. And you do this and you don't do that. And are you sure you want to do that? He doesn't give him any of that. When God finally gets Samuel's attention, he says, I'm going to tell you what I will do to Eli. And I'm scratching my head. And I'm saying, why is that so important for him to know? What do you think? Why would that be so important? I don't know, but this is as far as I got. If we read on in this book, Samuel is going to be in a unique position that thus this point in the history of Israel, he's going to anoint two kings. He's going to preside over the installation of the kingship. He also is to act as a judge, which is also like a deliverer. So much authority is going into Samuel and his position. He's going to have one king try to cut corners and disobey the word of the Lord. And he's going to anoint another king that doesn't even have the respect of his family. Why? 
I'm not sure if this is the definitive answer, only God knows why, but what I can tell you is from the very outset, when Samuel has his encounter with the Lord, the Lord wants Samuel to know without a doubt that the things that are taking place, the fall of Eli's house, the raising up, all of this, all of this will occur because of his initiative, because of the Lord's initiative, because the Lord is saying, I will not allow my name to be held in contempt. I will not allow my people to be silenced, to, 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 to not have the knowledge of me. And God is telling Samuel what he's going to do, lest there be any doubt in Samuel's mind that when it comes to pass, when Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day, when Eli falls off the back of the wall, come back for next week if you want to hear that, when, when all this comes to pass, Samuel's not going to have a doubt in his mind to know why it's happening. And it's not because, gee, tough things happen in life, or gee, isn't Samuel a great guy, or wow, I must be more qualified than everybody else. It's solely going to happen because this is what God has decided he will do. And we sing Hannah's song again. You lift the needy from the ash heap. You exalt and you bring low. You bring death and you bring alive. Samuel is going to be God's instrument for some pretty significant power dynamics and power shakeups. And if you marvel at Samuel's attitude, if you marvel at Samuel's behavior throughout the rest of the book, know that God set a lesson for him in the very first word that he revealed to him that his name will not be held in contempt, that he will get the glory, that he will do it. And so we come to the end of the story, and the light that was dimming is now shining. Verse 19, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. What a wonderful picture. And again, I, I just, you know, I, I think about my local post guy, you know, he drives, he drives up on his little motorbike, and and he races up, and he's got the packages, and I'm always thinking, how, how do you stay safe on that thing, you know? Sometimes I wonder, how often has my parcel sort of taken a tumble, you know, and sort of bounced around the, the, the ground? How many people drop this thing on the way to me? But it gets there. And the idea here is that God is delivering to Samuel his word, the knowledge of himself to his people, and he is making sure that when Samuel says it back, that that package is received, that nobody's fumbling the ball, that those who, who need to know him are coming to know him. And so we get verse 20, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. Oh, what a comfort that is for the people to know I'm curious what God thinks about this. Where should I go? I'm facing a difficult situation. I look at the headlines in the news. I read about things, and, 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 and it looks bleak. Who can tell me what the Lord says? And they remember, a prophet of the Lord is here. And so the Lord continues to appear at Shiloh, and there reveals himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. I'm going to jump ahead. You need to see the layers of this story. The first layer of this story is it's a problem-solution narrative. The problem is that God's people don't know him. And by the end, they have access to his word so that they can know him. Brothers and sisters, never doubt. Children, never doubt that God wants to be known. He wants you to understand who he is. He wants, to, wants you to understand his character. His grace, all he does for you. This is also an encounter story. It's a story of an individual who, who is addressed by God. And I just want to say, don't read these people and see them as heroes before you see them as humans. They are flesh and blood just like us. God cares about men and women 
God cares about children, about old people, about people all the way through. It's an encounter story. I ask, when's the last time you encountered the Lord? We've already talked about this. This is a parable. It's a parable for the nation of Israel. And so I want to tell you, if God has put you in a position to be his mouthpiece and you have stopped representing him, odds aren't great for you to hold that position for a long time. Because God wants his people to, be, to know him. Thirdly, I want you to see it's a salvation, sorry, fourthly, it's a salvation story. It's God coming to the rescue. God acting when the system was broken. And lastly, I hope you see this as gospel foreshadowing. How important is it to know the Lord? Well, God reveals himself through his word. At the beginning of his gospel, John writes these things. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We go down to verse 14. We read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God wanted people to know his word so much that he clothed it in flesh and blood. That he became like us. That there would be never any doubt ultimately of who God was. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way. For as great as Samuel was, at his best, he only would point to Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. You read the Old Testament, people are just waiting on a word from a prophet, just waiting on a word. But now we're told in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, through whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's the word made flesh. You want to know God, you have to know Jesus. You must know Jesus. That's why he said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. People say, well, just, you know, aren't there many paths to God? You know, I saw that picture of people grabbing at an elephant, you know, and everyone says, oh, an elephant's like this, an elephant's like that, you know, da, da, da. And isn't, aren't we all just trying to grasp for God, and we're just sort of holding on to the part that makes sense to us? Have you heard that? There is no elephant. There is only Jesus. And if you're not holding on to Jesus, you're holding on to something else. You're holding on to an idol, God would say. And he would say, that thing that we cling to that is not Christ, that thing is deceiving us. That thing will lead us astray. And ultimately, that thing, just like the house of Eli, will come crashing down. It's why Jesus, when he invited people to follow him and he finished his great sermon on the mount, he said, let me tell you a story about two builders. And he tells us about the wise and the foolish builder. And you, you know, you think, oh, this is about construction. But you forget the thing he says at the very end. He says, the one who hears my words and puts them into practice, this is the wise builder. Anything we don't build on the foundation of Jesus is not going to last. Because it's through Jesus that we know the Lord. time to time in life, we get a little survey. 
And it says, what's your religion? And you might sort of be tempted to say, you know, it'll say things like, you know, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, you know. And I think for a lot of people, they look at their religion as their family tradition. What family tradition was given down to you? And I don't think they quite understand what that word Christian means. It means little Christ. It means mini Jesus. What a great way to describe our lives. Brothers and sisters, if God has finally spoken authoritatively, definitively through Jesus, and he says, this, my son, is the exact representation of who I am, the radiance of my glory, and we get to tick the box that says, I am in the likeness of Christ. How can we continue to be that if we don't know the Lord, if we don't commune with Him regularly, if we don't hear from Him? That's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for myself that we would continue to know the Lord, that we would represent Christ that we wouldn't simply be adherents to a tradition, but that we would be adherents to the living God, the living Word Himself. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, what a glorious privilege it is to bear that title. And so often we fall short. Father, I thank you that Jesus said everything that you wanted him to say. That there was nothing he did that you didn't want him to do. So that we could see you. That we could know what it's like to be a human in relationship with God. Father, would you draw us to yourself this week? May we hear from you. May we walk with you. Surround us with people who will speak the truth. And Father, for anything in our life that brings contempt on your name, that besmudges your word, that besmudges the hope that we hold out in the gospel. For any of these, we ask your forgiveness. And we pray you would cleanse us of this unrighteousness. We ask this in your name, we pray. Amen.